Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 20. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about repulsive reflections, fearsome forests, bone-chilling books, and lurid legends. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories... If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. It's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn the lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening, from author N. Christ, is entitled Mirrored. 
You know that horror movie trope about mirrors? The one where the protagonist is near a mirror, and they look or shift away from the mirror for just a moment, and when they look back, a ghost, killer, or some other entity appears, and then usually rapidly disappears when they turn around? I've always disliked looking at mirrors, and for a while I convinced myself that it was caused by an overactive imagination combined with seeing this situation one too many times in a movie. But as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that it's much more than that. I don't dislike looking into mirrors. I'm afraid of it. Something has always just felt off about it. I recognize the image in my reflection as me, but it has never felt familiar. I brought it up to a friend once, and she goggled at me for a moment, and then laughed, though I could hear a tinge of fear behind it. What do you mean you don't recognize your reflection? How's that even possible? It's the same reflection that you've been staring at your whole life. And she was right, of course. But that was part of the problem. My reflection has never felt normal to me. Not in the way that it should. Not in the way that it does to other people. I've observed the reflection of friends and family members when they're standing near mirrors. It doesn't feel the same. It feels connected to them. A simple mirror image. Even when their eyes meet mine in the mirror, I don't feel the oppressive feeling of other that I get when I meet my own eyes in my reflection. With no explanation that seemed to fit my experiences, I chalked it up to just being a weird quirk and decided, oh, just get on with my life. When I moved into my first apartment by myself, I removed all of the mirrors except for one that I kept in my guest room. It stayed covered with a sheet unless I absolutely needed to use it. You'd be surprised how well you can get by without mirrors when you've been doing it your whole life. I even got pretty good at applying makeup without seeing what I was doing. Every once in a while, I'd catch my reflection in a mirror in a public bathroom, or if I looked wrong, into my rearview mirror, and it would set my heart racing. I've always felt menaced when it happened, and it would take me a few moments to calm down again. But all in all, I was doing fairly well with my mirror avoidance strategies. However, that all changed one day at work. I work in the artifact restoration department at my city's history museum. It typically is fascinating, delicate, and detailed work, and I love it. I mostly work with pottery or statues and carvings, but I always knew that one day someone would bring me an antique mirror to restore and I would have no choice but to do it. I had been at the museum for five years, and it still hadn't happened. I had almost convinced myself that I was in the clear. Alas, that was not the case. It was late on a Friday when it was first brought to me. The museum director had it wheeled in under a sheet, but I immediately knew what it was. I could tell from the dread that practically exploded inside me. He beamed at me as he whipped the sheet off. Isn't it magnificent? He crowed. Early 1700s, French. He smiled at me, waiting for my exclamations over its beauty, I'm sure. 
My breath felt like it was caught in my throat as I stared down my full reflection for the first time in what had been years. It looked back at me, also with a petrified expression, but it felt different, like my reflection's face was an act, a mimicking of my face, not an exact copy. I stood, transfixed for a minute, trapped under my own gaze. Suddenly, the director stepped into my line of view, blocking the mirror from my sight. Well, what do you think? Gorgeous, isn't it? Doesn't look like it needs too much work. A little spit shine, maybe. He said with a grin, winking at me. Yes, gorgeous, I mumbled. He must have noticed how white I had gone because he recovered the mirror and put his hand on my shoulder. Don't stress about it. I know you'll do a great job. And don't worry about starting today. You can get cracking on Monday. With that, he turned and left the room, leaving me alone with the mirror. I put my head in my hands and rubbed my temples with my thumbs. Okay, you can do this, I whispered to myself. You have the whole weekend to prepare. I looked up at the clock, 5.15. I grabbed my things and headed for the door. I'll deal with this mirror on Monday. I had almost made it all the way out of the building when I realized I'd left my keys on my work table. Unbelievable, I moaned. But there was nothing to be done for it. I needed the keys to lock up the building. Before I opened the door back to my workspace, I took a deep breath. It's just a stupid mirror, I said to myself. I stepped into the room. Everything looked normal. I stepped quickly past the mirror to my desk. I bent to open the drawer where I kept my keys, and when I turned around, the sheet that had been covering the mirror moments before was in a pile on the floor in front of it. My knees went weak, and I had to grab onto my desk to keep them from buckling. It just fell off. That's all. I whispered out loud. When I walked by it quickly, it made a breeze. It knocked it off. I felt deep down that that was not what had happened at all, but saying it out loud gave me enough courage to approach the mirror to replace the sheet. Once I was in front of it, I knelt down to grab the sheet, never once taking my eyes off my reflection. As I straightened back up, I turned to face the mirror head on. With one hand, I reached out and lightly pressed my fingertips against my reflections. My fingers stopped at the cold, hard glass. It was cold enough that the warmth from my fingers fogged up a little area around each tip. My reflection had the tiniest of smiles playing around her lips. I didn't feel myself smiling, but it was such a small one, perhaps I didn't notice myself doing it. I arranged my face into grotesque poses, just to make sure my reflection did it too. She did, but it brought me little comfort. I took a step forward until my face was practically touching the mirror. I could see every pore, every freckle. It looked familiar, but then it felt alien. I breathed onto it, fogging the surface in front of my face. I slowly traced a heart into the fog. I saw my reflection do the same, but then I noticed something odd. I couldn't see the heart I drew in the reflection. My heart began to pump wildly in my chest. 
I hastily used my sleeve to wipe away the remnants of my breath. The fog in the reflection, however, remained. I sucked in a sharp breath of air and took a staggering step back. I pressed my palms into my eyelids until I saw tears. I slowly counted to ten and opened my eyes. All I could see was my reflection staring worriedly back at me. She looked pale and faint, exactly how I felt, but it still didn't look or feel quite right. I threw the sheet back over the mirror and ran out of the building. By the time I arrived home, I had calmed down significantly, enough that I was able to remember that I had a date that night. I groaned out loud. I really didn't want to go, but I actually did like this guy. We had only been on a few dates and had hit it off well. So I pulled myself together the best I could. By the time Nick arrived to pick me up, I'd shaken off the vestiges of my earlier terror. While at dinner, he had asked me how my day had been. I hesitated, not wanting to tell him about what had happened, or about my irrational and odd reaction to mirrors. But I suddenly realized that I had a desperate desire to tell someone about what had happened, even if it made me sound crazy. I relayed the story to him, never once looking into his eyes. I didn't want to see what I knew would be reflected there. Fear, anxiety, disgust. But when I finished and did look up, he was simply studying me. After a moment, he reached out and took my hand. You know what I read once, he asked. I shook my head silently. It was on one of those microblog social media sites. It said, What if the only reason we can't walk through mirrors is because our reflection blocks us? What if they know that the other side is horrifying and painful and they're trying to keep us from ever crossing over it? He shrugged. Just a weird thing I read, but it sounds like yours isn't trying to protect you. It's trying to get you out of there, he said with a laugh. Wouldn't that be something? That would explain why you feel like you do. I sat in stunned silence. My throat was dry as the desert. I had to forcefully swallow several times before I could speak again. Yeah, that would be something. My mind was racing with what he had said as we left the restaurant. His little theory perfectly described how I felt, but I didn't know what to do with that information. It was nonsense, after all. I wanted only to go home at that point, but Nick grabbed my arm. I actually have something in mind for us to do tonight, but it's a surprise. I sighed internally, but smiled at him. Sure, lead the way. We caught a cab and got out in front of what looked like an old abandoned warehouse. I might have thought that's what it was, too, if it wasn't for the line of people out the door. What's this? I asked. It's an adventure space, he said with a huge smile. Kind of like a playhouse for grown-ups. I've seen it advertised all over the place. There's supposed to be things to explore and climb on. Stuff like that. And I couldn't help but smile at his infectious excitement. Okay, let's check it out. I said with a giggle. The first few rooms were indeed a lot of climbing and twisting and bending and crawling. We kept losing each other and then finding each other by the sound of our laughter. 
I was surprised at how much fun I was having. He grabbed my hand as we moved toward the last room. I think you'll like this one the best, he said, pulling me forward. I was about to ask why, but the word died on my lips as we walked through the doorway. It was a room full of mirrors. A much larger and more terrifying version of a funhouse made for children. He shoved me further into the room so that the door behind us slammed shut. To help you get over your fear, he said with another shove. Never before had I ever felt the level of fear that rose in my chest and at that moment. It was all-consuming. It wiped nearly every other thought from my mind. I was facing down hundreds of my own reflection, and they looked terrifying. I turned to Nick to beg him to help me out of there, but he had disappeared. Nick! I croaked, my voice cracking with terror. Nick! I screamed. I heard him laughing as he shouted, This way! I stumbled forward, hands outstretched, unable to tell which way was correct. Tears began pouring out of my eyes as I struggled to breathe under the weight of my panic. Every direction I looked was a reflection of myself, each one looking more ominous than the last. I turned a corner and saw hundreds of reflections at the back of my hand, all lined up in a row. I was paralyzed with fear. I closed my eyes and took a few shuddering, deep breaths. Nick! I called out again. This time, I got no answer. I knew to get out I was going to have to open my eyes, but there was no way I was making it out of there blind. I opened my eyes and was greeted with the same sight I had seen when I had closed them. I exhaled loudly. A tiny wave of relief hit me. I heard a noise to my right and turned my head that way. Nick? I asked again. When I looked forward again... All of my reflections were facing away from me, all except the one in front of me. She was facing me with a horrible grin plastered onto her face. She beckoned for me, as if in a trance I could only shake my head. When I didn't move forward, her grin turned into a snarl, and she began slamming her fists against the glass. I let out a blood-curdling scream as I saw my vision go spotty, I stepped back in such a panic that I smashed into the mirror behind me. I felt a sharp pain in the back of my head as a shower of glass rained down upon me. I'm certain I passed out for a moment, both from pain and fear. When I came to, I could feel something warm and sticky dripping down my back. I reached up with my hand and it came away bloody. Oh no, I moaned. I could faintly hear Nick yelling for me. I dragged myself up into a sitting position, wincing as my hands and legs got further cut up from the glass. Across the room, I could see Nick, and hundreds of Nick's reflections, kneeling down in front of me. I closed and rubbed my eyes, shaking my head in the process. How could Nick be with my reflection when he wasn't here with me? I must have hit my head harder than I thought. I thought to myself. I could hear him talking, but it sounded muted and far away. I heard the word help, but not much more. He stood up and sprinted for the door. 
I couldn't tell if he was coming back or not, and it seemed like I could get up and walk. I decided to try. I was still anxious to get out of this hall of horrors. I finally made it to the exit door. It had become extremely foggy and unseasonably cold while we were inside. The air had a terrible metallic tang to it that filled my nose and mouth. I shivered in the wind that whipped brutally around me. As I glanced around, I realized that I didn't see anyone else nearby. No people, no cars, nothing. Grimacing, I whipped out my cell phone to call for an ambulance myself, but the battery was dead. Come on, I yelled in frustration. I slowly started hobbling towards the road. I figured I could at least catch a cab, but there was no one on the road either. I began to cry again. What a nightmare this night has turned out to be. I staggered home, alone and freezing. When I got back inside, I plugged my phone in. I needed to let someone know that I was hurt and where I ended up. When the phone powered on, a barrage of texts came in, mostly from Nick, but they were all jumbled up. A random mix of letters, numbers, and symbols. I couldn't make heads or tails of any of it. I tried to send a text back, but it refused to send. I couldn't even get a signal to make a call. Panic, bitter like bile, threatened to rise up again, but I fought it off. I would deal with the shoddy cell service later. For now, I needed to take care of myself. Once I started to clean myself up, I quickly realized that most of my cuts were shallow or superficial. I was able to get the glass out and get everything cleaned up on my own. Well, every piece except one. I could feel one near the top of my head that I just couldn't get a good grip on. I closed my eyes and let out a deep breath. I was going to need to use the mirror. I hobbled into the guest room and slowly pulled the sheet away. Before, there had been nothing more frightening than seeing my reflection in the mirror. But that night, I realized there was one more terrifying than seeing my reflection in the mirror. Seeing nothing at all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our second story this evening is entitled Loon Harbor by author Keith Daniels.
I got called out to Seal Cove in the coast about a year ago for duty. Small town on the coast, you know how it is, maybe 700 people, tops. That's including the ones who aren't on paper. They told me I'd have a quiet eight months. Not much happens around there usually, besides the odd poacher or pissed-up drunk who needs a night in the tank to sober up. Never any real crime, never any murders or nothing. It's a bit of an odd spot, but nice enough. Folks are pretty friendly, made me feel at home. Lots of old folks, old fishermen and trappers and such, and they tend to keep to themselves more often. Not a lot of young people around, I guess most of them head off to college, and then they don't come back much. Things were going pretty good until about two weeks in. I walked into the station that morning, Wednesday, I think, and I hear Sheriff Thompson and Deputy Colby talking in the lunchroom, real hushed, like something's wrong. I figured I should pop my head in and say good morning, and grab some coffee, too. So I stroll on in and nod and give him a good morning, and I'm about to grab a cup of joe to head back to the office when the sheriff tells me to sit down. You can always tell in somebody's voice when there's something truly wrong. They always stumble that they forgot how to explain things or that the words they use, well, they don't make sense at all anymore. I could hear it in Sheriff's voice that morning. It didn't sound right. Turns out Sheriff Thompson's father-in-law passed away the summer before at the age of 75, and he and his wife were real pioneer-type folks. Mr. and Mrs. Dossett, lived up the coast of ways in a little inlet called Loon Harbor. They had the place all to themselves, not a single other cabin around. They were totally off the grid, no power, telephone, roads. You get the picture. Only connection they had with the outside world was their wooden outboard motorboat and a little CV radio. Mr. Dossett was an old-school trapper, and his missus worked with him side by side, curing and tanning hides and prepping them up to ship off to the city, where they'd get sold at auction. The Dossets made their living from the land and got their supplies from Seal Cove without ever having to step foot in the city. And that was the way they liked it, a quiet, simple life. Not a lot of people do that kind of thing anymore. I have to say I admired it. Since old Mr. Dossett died, Sheriff said that his mother-in-law hadn't ever been quite the same. Old Mr. Dossett had been having trouble with his knees the last few years, and so him and Mrs. Dossett would stay at the sheriff's family during the winter before heading back to Loon Harbor in the spring. The Thompsons didn't mind. They all thought that Mr. and Mrs. Dossett were getting too old for their rough-and-tumble lifestyles anyways. In the months following Mr. Dossett's death, Mrs. Dossett started talking about spending the winter in Loon Harbor again, something that deeply concerned the sheriff's family. They tried to persuade her otherwise, that alone in the wilderness was no place for a woman at her age. In the end, though, Mrs. Dossett got her way, her undying reasoning being, it's what he would have wanted. Sheriff got real quiet then, and said that up until Monday, his wife and Mrs. Dossett had been in touch every day, and Mrs. Thompson made sure to get every detail about how she was doing on her own. The last two mornings, though, Mrs. Dossett hadn't been answering her radio. It wasn't like her, Sheriff said, to just leave people hanging like that. Something was definitely wrong, either with Mrs. Dossett or her radio, 
and we were going to have to send a team to make sure things were all right. We'd take Colby's personal speedboat and head up to the harbor and check in on Mrs. Dossett, taking a specially prepared medical kit from Donna, the town's resident doctor. The thaw was just starting, so we'd have to take our time and watch out for ice, but it should be easy to do in a few hours so long as we all keep our eyes open. Sheriff told us the plan was to leave as soon as possible and be back before dark. I thought we'd easily be back by noon, but I hadn't realized at the time uh, what we might find at the cabin in Loon Harbor. None of us could have. By nine, we were kicking off the pier and making our way out of Seal Cove, northeast along the shoreline. Wind was like ice in our faces, but Colby's boat had a windbreak on it, which made the trip bearable. The whole way, Sheriff had an uneasy look about him, which was understandable, given the thoughts that were probably going through his mind. It was his wife's mother, after all. If something bad had happened to her, oh, hell, I wouldn't want to have to take that news home to Mrs. Thompson. The trip took about 40 minutes, and by the time we turned around the point into Loon Harbor, we were feeling pretty anxious to get in out of the wind and onto land. The harbor was something else. Bordered on either side by hills littered with remnants of the winter's heavy snow, and with a low valley that reached for miles inland, curving left and right, and filled with old evergreen trees, it was truly a hermit's paradise. The Dossett cabin stood a short walk from the water's edge in a small clearing, specked here and there by birch trees. Colby tied the boat on the end of the little dock where Mrs. Dossett had hauled up her boat for the winter, she had a winch, sure, but still not bad for a 67-year-old. Despite all the beauty of that place, something seemed off about the whole picture. The harbor was ice-free, so why hadn't the old girl put her boat back in the water? And why wasn't there smoke coming from the chimney? Strangest of all was, where was she? Now, I know Mrs. Dossett liked to keep to herself these days, and I'm sure she had work to take care of inside the cabin or out back, but after two full days of no human contact, surely she would notice the racket of an outboard motor less than a hundred yards from her front door. Claire! Sheriff shouted out. You're round? Silence. Here with some old boys to check up on you. Still no answer. Probably busy inside, Colby offered. He meant to comfort the sheriff, but the shakiness in his voice gave him away. He must have had that same feeling of discomfort that I did. We started up the path, walking slowly and looking around for, well, anything really. And when we got a little closer, I could tell the curtains were all closed. It looked like nobody was home. Something ain't right, boys, sheriff said. We knew. Up on the front porch, things got even more strange. It hadn't snowed for the last week or so, and anything lying on the ground was left over for a while, hard and crusty on the top, for melting and freezing over and over. The whole front porch was covered with a layer of crusty snow. No footprints anywhere, and I started feeling mighty apprehensive when Sheriff pointed out the front door. It was open. Just a little bit. Claire! Sheriff called again. We're coming inside! I tensed up, preparing myself for what we'd find inside. 
I'd never found a cadaver before, never seen one besides at funerals. Sheriff opened the door. In the dim light of the cabin, there was a dark shape that was hanging in the middle of the room, swinging slightly from the breeze that we let in. At first, I took it for a blanket or a coat, but as my eyes adjusted, I saw the familiar texture of raw meat. To God, I let out. Colby swore. Sheriff ran to the porch trail and got sick over and over. The shape was a body, a woman's shape, hanging by one ankle from a rafter and spinning around slow. Beside, on the floor, a knife with a long, curved blade lay in a pool of blood. A skinning knife. The cabin was cold, so cold. Colder than the air outside. There was no smell, no scent of decay, and I knew at once it was because the body was frozen. We all stepped down onto the snow-patched grass and took a breath. We couldn't have imagined this. How could anyone have imagined this? The sheer horror of that poor woman's body was unfathomable. We stood there, staring out at the water, and slowly the reality of the situation settled itself in. This was a crime scene. Murder scene. We were police. We had a job to do. Colby and I insisted again and again that the sheriff ought to sit it out, that he shouldn't get too involved because it was family we were dealing with. He would have none of it. I think in his mind, making sure the investigation went as smoothly as possible, was a sort of farewell to the old woman. So the three of us got started. There were photos to be taken. So many photos. Every surface in the cabin from every angle. The body. The knife. We dusted for prints, took samples of hair, blood, all the usual stuff. All the while we were collecting evidence, Mrs. Dossett kept spinning around to take us in with those lidless eyes. Before long, we cut her down and got her in the body bag. I'd like to say we did it out of respect, but that way we didn't feel we have to feel her eyes on us anymore. If things weren't already terrible enough, other aspects of the crime scene were starting to stand out as being peculiar. First off, the lack of footprints outside the front door meant that nobody had entered or exited the cabin for at least a week. The radio was in prime working condition, something we discovered when Mrs. Thompson called in to ask if we had fixed the radio yet. We didn't respond. The cupboards were stocked nearly full, and upon closer inspection, it seemed as though Mrs. Dossett hadn't touched her winter supply. In the garbage, only a few empty cans were found. It was starting to look as though the murder had occurred much earlier, at the beginning of Mrs. Dossett's trip. This was backed up by the fact that the woodpile, which was stacked against the leeward side of the cabin, had hardly been diminished. Inside... A small pile of sticks sat neatly by the wood stove. Stranger still was that there was only a small amount of ash in the stove. The remnants of one, maybe two fires. From the looks of things, she had been killed just a few days after returning to Loon Harbor. Sheriff, when was it you said Lucy and her last talked? I asked wearily. Day before yesterday, said. I heard her voice myself on the radio. 
Clearly, things weren't adding up. We were reading the wrong scene somehow. Maybe Mrs. Doss had had extra wood and food stocked for the winter. Maybe she had gotten rid of the garbage somehow. Simple enough explanation. Only explanation, really. It was just hard to keep my mind thinking logically after seeing something so disturbing. Of course, the next thing that came to mind was the murderer. Where did they go? How did they get in the cabin and sneak off seemingly without a trace? And how did they get there in the first place? It was frightful to think that the horror of the man who had committed the crime might be a mere two days' walk from here, perhaps closer. Where was he? And more worryingly, where was the... Jesus Christ! Colby shrieked from a few feet behind me, deafening my ear. I spun around as quick as possible, nearly choking with shock, as he fired two rounds through the glass of the living room window. The hell, Colby! I shouted, grabbing for my gun. Sheriff came running out of the bedroom, revolver at the ready. What's happening? He demanded of us, but by that point, Colby was darting out through the door. Damn it! We heard him yell as he disappeared into the bright spring sun outside. He'd seen something. He'd seen them. Let me, Porter, now! Sheriff said, and we made our way out onto the porch. Colby's footsteps led away from the shore toward the Dossett's trapline, straight into the woods. Colby! Sheriff yelled, but no reply came. Then, another shot. As fast as we could, we ran. Sheriff in the lead, watching the right while I brought up the rear, watching the left. We could hear Colby shouting again, swearing. He sounded far off, not quite straight ahead. We were sprinting when two more shots rang off to our sharp left. Colby had left the main path. In patches of dirty snow, there were footprints spaced far apart. Another shout. Another shot. And then... Silence. Colby, talk to us! I shouted, praying that it was him who had fired that last shot. There was no sound for a good ten seconds, and then... Here! Came a weak reply. Off to our left again this time. He had started to turn back towards the cabin, full circle. When we found him, he was standing with his back to a tree, gun gripped tight in both hands, eyes wide open. The poor boy was shaking like a leaf of grass in the wind. What the hell were you thinking? Sheriff boomed at him. Colby just shuddered at the noise, looked wildly around and ran to us. The look on his face when he got near was indescribable. I'd never seen anybody look so relieved to see me. I saw... I... I mean, I saw... I, I saw... He kept muttering over and over. He looked scared, but almost like he was embarrassed to show it. I, I mean, I, I saw... I think... was all he said. We made our walk back to the cabin, slow and cautious. Whatever it was that had been watching us was surely still nearby. We figured it best to get out as soon as possible, grab our things and take the body back to town. Those woods seemed like the worst possible place to be at that point. By six o'clock that evening, we were pulling back into town. Nobody would said a word since we left Loon Harbor, and the ride seemed to go on for hours. Colby was too stirred up from his encounter in the woods, and I figured it best if Sheriff avoided as much stress as possible 
so I'd offered to steer us back to Seal Cove. The whole way, though, I kept glancing over to the shore, expecting to see somebody watching us, I guess. The funeral was held three days later. No casket for poor Mrs. Dawson. The family had her cremated. Poor Mrs. Thompson looked like she'd had all the blood drained from her body. Still, she held it together for the kids, I suppose. Colby didn't show up for the funeral. After I offered my condolences to Sheriff and his family, he told me that nobody had seen Colby at the station since the day we got back from Loon Harbor, and I should keep an eye out for him. That night, I found myself back at my desk, sorting through photo after photo from the cabin. The woman had been dead for quite some time, likely for most of the winter. Whoever had done this to her was still nearby when we arrived at the harbor, but they couldn't have possibly spent the winter there. There was no food missing, and no sign that the place had been occupied. Nothing was adding up. I started putting the folders away when a terrible thought entered my head. What if the murderer was never outside that window? What if Deputy Colby had fooled us all? He claimed to have seen somebody outside that cabin and certainly convinced the sheriff and I that it was true. But who else had seen it? Only Colby. What if he had killed Mrs. Dawson? It would explain the condition of the cabin, his mysterious encounter, everything. Colby had a boat and could easily have taken a detour to Loon Harbor during one of his hunting trips. But why on earth would he have done such a thing? What grudge could he possibly hold against the sheriff's poor mother-in-law or against Sheriff Thompson himself? My mind was racing, my hands shaky. Hell, it was past midnight, and I hadn't slept more than an hour each night since that wretched day. I needed to head home and try to get some rest. It would be the best to have a clear head when I confronted Sheriff about this in the morning. Left the station and started walking to my rented house, but decided to stop in at the pub for a quick drink. A little something to unwind. Took a seat and ordered up a double rum just as somebody slid into the stool at my left. How'd a funeral go? Colby asked, clutching an empty glass and stinking of whiskey. My heart nearly stopped when I heard his voice, but I had to play dumb. Very sad, I said, taking a gulp of rum. Had to get out of there as fast as possible. He didn't come. I was, uh, busy. He slurred, tapping his empty glass. Yeah, I see. Been spending some uh, quality time with dear Craig here, he said, pointing at the bartender. About one more, bud. Craig filled up the glass, shaking his head but saying nothing. Clearly, Colby had been here for the last few days. I hoped it was the guilt getting to him, sick bastard. You haven't been to the station, I said. No, 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 he muttered. I can't be looking at those pictures. Memory's bad enough, ain't it? It's our job, I said through gritted teeth. He could sit here and talk all about her like that. I was disgusted with him. I turned to look him straight in the face. He's still out there, somewhere. You got me there, Porter, he said, staring into his whiskey. Drunk as he was, it would be so easy to cuff him then and there. 
Well, you saw him with your own eyes, didn't you? I pressed. Her? So it was a woman you saw. I was getting impatient. It was her. Colby twisted in his seat and looked me dead in the eyes. Her, Porter. I didn't know what to make of it. He didn't look like he was guilty or grieving or lying. He looked afraid. What do you mean? I asked. Colby drained his whiskey in one go. Claire Dossett, he said. I saw her face watching us through the window. Or maybe I'm just crazy. With that, he got up and walked out, leaving me staring at the bottles behind the bar. Another? Craig asked me. No. I'm not sure why. It must have been something in Colby's voice. But I decided to hold off on telling the sheriff about my suspicions. I'd have to have a chat with Donna, the doctor. I was curious to hear what she'd have to say about Mr. Dossett's death. The night crept by with agonizing patience, stars sliding in and out of view behind the bank of the fog that hung over the harbor. Each time I closed my eyes, I would see Mrs. Dossett's lidless gaze. The last few hours of darkness I spent at the kitchen table, staring at the front door with a hand on my revolver. The clinic was quiet that morning, and when I first spoke to Donna, I could tell she was looking at me in a peculiar sort of way. She offered me a cup of coffee, which I gladly accepted. It must have looked terrible. I have a few questions for you about Mr. Dossett, I said. The coffee seemed to warm me straight away when I took a sip. About his health before his death. Right, she said. Where would you like me to start? Sheriff Thompson told me about his decline in health during his last year. Said that his father-in-law was unable to stay at the cabin like they'd been doing all along. What sort of problems was he having? Sheriff mentioned arthritis or something like that. Donna took a sip of coffee with a puzzled look on her face. Mr. Dossett had been having joint trouble for some years before his death. I told him that he should start easing off, retire. He'd have none of it. I gave him information about other, less strenuous activities he might try to keep active, which he dismissed as yoga for hippies. I wouldn't blame his arthritis for slowing him down so much as his more general well-being. In what way? Well, mentally, more or less. He suddenly seemed paranoid of those around him. He seemed to think that he was being watched. Interesting. It was cold in the office. Can you remember when exactly this behavior started? I could find the folder with my notes from Mr. Dossett's appointment. You have notes? Scribblings, more like. I'm not a psychiatrist officer, but I know well enough to tell when somebody's mind is in a troubled state. And this was... about six months before his disappearance? His? Apparently Sheriff had left that part out. He'd never mentioned anything about any missing person case. You didn't know? Donna took a deep breath. The poor family's been through so much. Lucy was depressed for a long time. Sheriff Thompson took her into the city for therapy for a few months, I remember. Mr. Dossett just got up one morning, went out for a walk, and never came back. It was a sad time for the whole town. 
I can imagine. There was a search, yes? Did they ever find the body? She shook her head. No body. They couldn't even give the man a proper burial. Donna gave me a look. The sheriff would know a lot more about the case than I do, officer. Have you spoken to him? Not about this. Not now. I don't want to give him or his family any more grief. Sorry to bother you, Donna, but I just got a few more questions. Sure. You said that Mr. Dossett's behavior changed quickly about six months before he went missing. Given your medical knowledge, what do you think could have led to the change? Well, there are many possibilities, too many to guess. Again, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, officer Porter, but it seemed to me that his personality changed due to some sort of experience, not a medical issue. Some trauma that he alone had gone through. Whatever it was that he saw or imagined, I can't say, but it certainly left him unhinged, broken. Donna looked very sad. I'd never seen somebody so full of fear. Claire used to come with him to his appointments. He seemed afraid of being alone, even for a moment. But the day he went missing, Mr. Dawson left home alone. It seemed very strange. Yes. Thank you, Doctor. It's been very helpful. I got up to leave. I'm glad to help, Officer. I admit I was expecting you to ask me about Lucy's mother, not her father. Have you found some sort of connection between them? Yes, I thought, but instead I said, I'd rather not say right now. Of course, said Donna, and she walked me out. It was still early, too early for lunch. I wasn't hungry anyways. I headed to the station to find a folder on my desk. The sheriff's office door was shut, and I didn't want to bother him. I opened a folder. Coroner's report was on top. I flipped through the pages, but most of it was old news. Time of death was undetermined, but certainly more than a month ago. Notes about stomach contents, minor cuts, and defense wounds. I poured over it all, obsessing over every line. But the one thing that grabbed my attention was the cause of death. Hypothermia. And the side note that read... Minimal blood loss, no cutting of major arteries. She had actually survived being skinned alive. God, the thought of it was enough to drive anybody over the edge. Lucy would probably be needing some more therapy after all that had happened. Lucy, I thought. She was the one aspect of the murder that complicated everything else. All of the evidence, all of the details about the crime scene... They were all shifted into the unreal by Lucy saying she had been in contact with her mother throughout the winter. It was her testimony that made the whole thing so damn complicated. So what if it wasn't true? The sheriff's wife had a history of mental distress and knew now. Extended periods of depression, she was obviously worried about her mother's well-being and under a large amount of stress. Hell, being married to a police officer was probably enough stress on its own. What if her conversations hadn't really happened? What if it was just a delusion of hers? But no, I realized, that wasn't it. Sheriff had told me the day at Loon Harbor that he had heard Mrs. Dawson's voice over the radio himself. Another explanation shot down. 
another reason to feel very much at unease. There was only one logical next step. I'd have to talk to her myself. If anybody would know an important detail about Mrs. Dossett's situation, surely it would be her own daughter. The woman had spoken with her every day, she claimed. She must have noticed something, some small detail that would explain everything. Sheriff wouldn't be happy, but damn it, I had to do something. The sheriff's office light was still on. It would have to be uh, now, before she got home. I could use a walk anyways, grabbed my jacket and walked out into the street. I was shocked to see that night had just begun to fall. Christ, I'd been so wrapped up in things that hours had melted away. I suddenly realized the churning hunger in my stomach and the tired ache in my eyes, but it would have to wait till later. The Thompson house was located on a new side road that hadn't been paved yet. Theirs was one of the first houses built in the area, and it was a short walk through the woods to get there. It was cold out, so I zipped up and walked fast. The hard-packed gravel crunched lightly under my feet, echoing off the bare tree trunks that carried on out the sight of either side of the wood. But was that an echo? It didn't sound like an echo. The footsteps sounded faster than my own. I stopped, and I got faster, louder. I spun around, reaching for my revolver and realizing too late that I'd left it on my desk at the station. The figure flew at me from the shadows and rammed straight into my chest. It knocked the breath out of me, and as I struggled to get it off of me, the stench of sweat and whiskey filled my nose. Colby's face was mere inches from my own his bloodshot eyes staring into mine and darting wildly off one side to the other, scanning the woods around us before looking back at me. Tears were wet on his cheeks, and spit flew in my face as he screamed. Stop it! Stop it! You have to help! You have to stop it, please! Make her go! Make her go! Let go of me! I yelled back, struggling to free my hands, but he had pinned them to the ground. Get off of me now! I saw it. I saw it and it wants me, Porter. She's going to kill me, Porter. Please. Colby, snap out of it, I yelled. But it was beyond reason. That was the madness in his eyes. You saw her, too. You were right there. You had to. She's coming, Porter. Help me, please. Make her. I managed to free my hand and slammed a fist into the side of Colby's head. He rolled off, screaming and swearing and crying. What in God's name? I didn't get a chance to finish before he lunged at me again. I'd barely gotten to my feet, but in his crazed, drunken state, I managed to get out of the way. I had just grabbed for my handcuffs when he pulled a gun on me. No! He screamed, scrambling to his feet. Don't do this to me! Colby. My throat was dry. Colby, let's talk about... No! He was sobbing now. The hand holding the gun was shaking. He was pointing at me, but his eyes kept darting off to the trees. No, please, it... There was a loud crack, like the breaking of a branch off to one side, and he swung the gun around, firing three shots into the woods. That was my chance. I slammed a boot into the back of Colby's leg as hard as I could, and he went down like a wounded animal, screaming and shaking. Gunshots were ringing out as he fired wildly around. I ran, ran faster than I'd ever before. I scrambled over the gravel road, nearly falling head over heels, 
while Colby's screams and gunshots fill the night among other stranger sounds. My memory after that is fuzzy. Bits and pieces are all that remain. I know I got to the Thompson house. I remember the look of shock on Lucy and the kids' faces when I stormed in, slamming the door behind me. I remember the sheriff arriving and an ambulance showing up. Colby was nowhere to be seen. All that remained on the road was a handful of empty bullet casings and some blood. I remember handing over my badge and leaving the house key in my landlord's mailbox, along with a short letter saying I was moving out. My last memory of Seal Cove is the bus ride back to the city. Four hours of dead radio and nothing to look at but trees. I looked at the floor instead. I got a new job, new apartment, and tried to never think about it again. Until now. News station tonight aired a story on the growing number of missing persons in rural towns. The count now stands at 11, nine being residents of Seal Cove, including the town's deputy sheriff. They showed a quick clip of Sheriff Thompson, who looked more gaunt than ever. Only three bodies have been found, exhibiting what the reporter referred to as heavy mutilation. It doesn't take much imagination to figure out exactly what that means. People have to know it's not safe anymore. That thing, whatever it is, has gotten bolder. It had to have started with Mr. Dossett. He had awoken it at Loon Harbor, it seems. After that, it had lured him off somehow, made him follow it into the trees. Then it descended on his wife when she was alone and miles away from help, probably in Mr. Dossett's form. And Colby? Poor, innocent Colby. The thing had followed us back to Seal Cove in pursuit of him after he'd seen it at Loon Harbor. We had lured it straight to humanity. How many of these new cases are victims of the same evil? Is that all our fault? I don't know if it'll leave the woods long enough to come into the city, but how will we know when it does? Each stranger you pass in the streets could be it in disguise. Each voice you hear on the phone could be a lie. The only safety, it seems, is to never be alone. Mr. and Mrs. Dossett Colby, they had all been alone when it came for them. Maybe if I hadn't abandoned Colby in the road that night, he'd still be alive. Tomorrow, I board the bus and head back to Seal Cove for questioning by the sheriff. Being the last person to see Colby alive, I always knew it was just a matter of time. God knows if I'll make it back or if that thing will take me and make a new mask of my face. The Skinner, I've come to call it. It haunts my dreams every night, though I've never seen it with my own eyes. In my dreams, it's always Colby, though, always watching silently from behind the trees. It won't stop. It's on the move now and picking up speed. I wish I could say I know more about what to do, but I don't. For now, all I can say is stay close, stay safe, and stay out of the woods. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season, or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows, such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway?
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.